James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. I'm a fan. I, I, fan might be too strong of a word. I enjoy the television show Antiques Roadshow. Not because I'm a big antiquer. Uh, I just uh, I find it fascinating. I, I never knew how exciting the appraised value of a dresser could be, but for some reason it captures my attention. And uh, last year there was an episode where a guy named Alvin Barr brought in a ceramic jug. And it's covered in all these faces, kind of warped looking different faces. And the appraiser was just beside himself at this jug. Uh, Alvin had picked it up at an estate sale, paid like 300 bucks for it. Uh, his wife apparently was not with him when he bought it. That's the only explanation for spending that kind of money on something that looked like that. But the appraiser said, this thing is unbelievable. Uh, it, it, when you look at it, it shows the, all the different techniques that the artist used to create these textures. Uh, and it, there's something about all these faces that has a certain Pablo Picasso quality about it. Probably made late 19th, early 20th century, and the appraiser valued the jug between thirty and fifty thousand dollars. And uh, Alvin loved that; he was so excited. Uh, the only problem was that a woman named Betsy Soul saw the episode, and she recognized that jug because she had made it in her high school ceramics class <laughs> in the mid-70s. <laughs> she was not some latent genius when it came to ceramics. She's just some high schooler, blah, 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 blah. And out came this jug. Uh, the value of the jug was adjusted accordingly. <laughs> not quite the windfall Alvin had expected. Uh, counterfeits make for fascinating stories. You know, they're, they're neat little artifacts. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a certain quality about things that are counterfeit or things that aren't sincere to what they claim to be that has a repulsive quality about it. That's true of knockoff purses or knockoff sunglasses. It's even true of the Christian faith. And it's possible to have a counterfeit Christianity. It's possible that we could self-evaluate and say, I got it together. I've got everything right when in reality we're deceived. We're not practicing the kind of faith that brings honor and glory to God. Have you ever seen religious hypocrisy at work? Of course you have. And no one gets close to religious hypocrisy and says, that has an appeal to me. That really makes me feel good. That makes me want to pursue the God of this individual. Religious hypocrisy, especially Christian hypocrisy, um, is, well, it's unsavory to say the least. Well, here we've got James writing a letter to a Christian church that's under persecution, that is struggling with all kinds of different trials, and at the same time, struggling to walk in line with the life that God has called them to in Jesus Christ. They're a church that has strayed from their north star, so to speak. And in the midst of pressures and trials and difficulties and temptations, here's a group of Christians who are not speaking and thinking and acting the way they ought to as followers of Jesus Christ. 
So what I love about the book of James, and maybe you could love this too, is that while he opens with such encouraging words in chapter 1 to people under trials, he doesn't stop there, but he goes on to push even beleaguered Christians to walk in holiness, to pursue Christ with an acute desire to not be a complacent Christian, to not be someone who is Christian in label only, but that we would practice a whole life devotion to Jesus Christ. James could have written this letter last week, and it would have been just as pertinent to us today as it was to people in the first century. These struggles are not new. This is not some modern manifestation, some latent struggle that just came onto the scene. Christians have always struggled with walking in line with the holiness of Jesus Christ. And so today, we're going to put into practice something we just sang. This last song we just sang has a line in it. You sang this line twice. You said, test our thoughts and our attitudes. You sang that. Did you know it? And you weren't duped. It wasn't a bait and switch. You you freely sang that line twice. We're going to do that today. We're going to take this passage and use it to do a wellness check, a self-examination. And in fact, the way we're going to handle it is I want to give you three tests that will help evaluate our spiritual health and put us on a course that follows Christ more faithfully. These three tests have, each has a question with it, and James is going to push us in some very sensitive directions. So, my goal today is to help diagnose places where you might not be so spiritually healthy, and then from James to show you a better way forward. So, before we take our three tests, let us read our material. I want you to follow along with me as I read James chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 19 and go to the end of the chapter. James writes this, My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says It's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself And his religion is worthless. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So it's self-check time. We're going to test our thoughts and attitudes. We're going to test our actions as well. I want to give you three tests to help diagnose our spiritual health. So if you're taking notes, test number one, I'd call it this, a test of character. Verses 19 through 21 give us a test of character. 
And there's a question, one question that goes along with that test. And that question is this. Is my character shaped by the Word of God? Who I am inside, is that part of me shaped by the Word of God? Verse 19, James begins this section by addressing the different ways we respond to conflict. Our responses to conflicts or trials or temptations must reflect the Word of God in us. So look at verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And all God's people said, well, that's dumb. If I'm supposed to be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, then what am I going to do with my social media accounts? Better yet, you may just need to turn and offer an apology to the person you rode to church with this morning for the tone you used, perhaps. Did it just get really awkward and quiet in here? It did. That's right. Because this is practical life. You may have created your need for this word this morning with your attitude. The question is this. Who should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? What does James tell us? Everyone, every Christian. These these are not characteristics for a select few. This is baseline Christianity for every follower of Jesus. We don't get to excuse ourselves from this way of being simply because of where we're from, or "I, I just got a hot head or because of how dumb the people around me are, right? We don't get to excuse ourselves from bringing our character into line with verse 19. What's wrong with being a hot-headed Christian? What if that's your endearing trait? That's just Cody. He's just like that. Everyone knows it. What's wrong with that? Well, James tells us in verse 20, For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. In other words, when we are driven by anger, we are not doing what God requires of his people. If you have an anger problem, you have a holiness problem. If you are driven by anger, you are not driven by righteousness. There's something that has to be fixed in your broken character. Now, does this mean that Christians are forbidden from getting angry? I I don't think that's what James is getting at at all. There is such a thing as righteous anger or a holy anger. And Christians ought to be angry about the manifestations of sin and brokenness in the world around us. We ought to be angry at things like child abuse. That ought to just be baseline. We ought to be angry at abortion. We ought to be angry at genocide. We ought to be angry at all the broken, sinful issues that plague humanity. And our anger at these things ought to evoke from us a Christ-like response that comes from a Christ-like character. So if it's a grand provocation or some lesser matter, we always respond in a way that reflects Christ in us. A Christian with a short fuse, a Christian with a sharp mouth, 
A Christian who brings all heat and no light to a situation is not a Christian that has the character of Christ. So how does this change in us? If we recognize that we're not practicing the character of Christ, then what should we do about it? James gives us direction in verse 21. Look at what he says. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So first he tells us, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. James speaks very directly. He's a New Englander at heart. He does not mince words. He, look at how he labels our tempers and our foul mouths. What does he call them? Moral filth. Evil. The Word of God takes your sin far more serious than you do. James doesn't make excuses for it. He doesn't find it to be a quaint uh, personal trait. He says this is moral filth. It's a prevalent evil. The whole world is like this. But followers of Christ are, are different. It's not a joke. It's evil. So James says, leave it. Repent from it. And find your strength where? In the Word of God. He's, James isn't just yelling at you to stop it. <laughs> He says, repent from this and instead do what? Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. That line might seem confusing. It may seem there at the end of verse 21 as if James is describing how a person is saved. Right? It, but I think that would be a misreading if we take James in verse 21 to be speaking to a non-believer and saying, here's how you fix the anger. You, you accept the word planted in you. James's audience is clear. He, at the beginning of this section, verse 19, he addresses them, my dear brothers. He's speaking to believers. And he's telling them, the way we remove ourselves from this evil anger, evil speech, evil reactions, is by rooting ourselves in the Word of God that has saved us. If you're saved, here's how you're saved. You've heard the gospel, you've believed the gospel, you've been saved by the gospel. That gospel that has saved you is the gospel that will sanctify you as well. So we have to focus on the word planted in us. And, and it requires a certain type of posture. What's the correct posture? It's humility. Humbly accept the word planted in you. If we don't come with the correct heart posture, we're, we're never going to change humbly put ourselves under the Word of God and let Scripture inform our reactions so that we are not quick to anger. We're not quick to speak. We're not slow to listen. But we respond to trials and conflict the way Jesus does. So where could you look in Scripture if you needed to anchor yourself or plant yourself in the Word of God to evoke from yourself a different kind of response to conflict. There's any number of places you could look. I would recommend this. Matthew chapter 26, verses 59 through 62. Jesus has been arrested, and he's facing a mock trial by a kangaroo court of religious leaders. He'll be hanging on a cross in mere hours. And in this particular scene the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, 
I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Now he does speak in just a verse or two after this. But in Jesus, we see what James is pointing us to. To be these kinds of people with a different kind of character. Not that character that's so prevalent in the world around us, but a character that reflects Jesus Christ. Humble, quiet, powerful. That's the kind of people you and I are to be. So if you'll read and meditate on the crucifixion of Jesus, you're going to find a pathway through your anger and your hurtful words and your failure to listen. When we look to Jesus on the cross, we'll understand better that Christian men do not call their wives names. Christian women do not berate their husbands. Christian parents don't spew vitriol to their children. Christians are responsible in all forms of our speech to reflect the character of Christ, even on social media. Does your social media reflect your Christ-like character? If we will anchor ourselves in the Word of God, we will produce the righteousness that God desires. We need character shaped by the Word of God. First test is a test of character. Is my character shaped by the Word of God? The second test is a test of focus. Verses 22 through 25, it's a test of focus. And it asks this question. Do I look to the Word to inform my action? Do I look to the Word of God to inform my actions? Verse 22 is a favorite of many people, probably because, well, one, it's powerful, And two, it's easy to memorize in the King James, right? But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. We like verse 22 a lot. But I'm telling you, verse 22 is a challenge. If we will sit and read it for ourselves and not think about other people when we do, it's a serious challenge. If you listen to the word but you don't obey it, don't act on it, James says this, you are deceived. It's a big deal, verse 22. If you listen to it, you don't do it, you're deceived. You have a ritual without substance. You you have a religion without redemption. There's something broken in the person who will hear the word of God and yet not act on the word of God. What are the ways in which you hear, you listen to the word of God? In James's original audience, they had some limited options. Not everyone had scrolls at home of scripture that they could read so they had to gather as the church to have the the word read to them shared with them but you you have ample access to bibles in the language you speak uh, in translations that make sense you you have the opportunity to read the word on your own every day also you came to church today and in, in our church we center the Word of God in our service. Everything is built around Scripture. So if you come to church at South Shore Baptist, you better hear the Word of God. You're going to listen and hear Scripture. You might hear the Word of God through other means. Perhaps 
by memorizing a text, perhaps by singing worship songs that are rooted in Scripture as well. There's any number of ways you might get the Word of God into you, but it is entirely possible to be a hearer of the Word and not a doer of it. To amen its authority and its inerrancy and its inspiration, but then to not amen it in the way we lead our lives. Those who hear and do not practice are deceived in their religion. We've got to do what it says. Why? Because this is God speaking. The one who said, let there be fill in the blank, is the one who gave us this word here. This is not mere history, not mythology, not the inventions of some group of men in a smoke-filled room long ago to secure power for themselves. This is God's words of salvation and hope and life and love and warning to us. Verse 23 gives us a picture of what it's like to be the kind of person who hears and doesn't listen. Look at what James says in verse 23. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This is kind of a tricky word picture could be taken a couple of different ways but the one thing they have in common is it's negative right so if you'll remember what mirrors are like in the first century not exactly what you looked in in the bathroom this morning Uh, the first century mirror is more like looking on the back of a rusty spoon or something like that if if you're going to really get a good look at yourself you got to look close you got to study it you got to get up close to it But the person who hears the Word of God and doesn't do it is like a person who looks in the mirror with a glance and just walks on by, not realizing they have on two different shoes, they've missed a belt loop, their buttons are askew, and their shirt is inside out. You're dressed, technically, you're dressed, but you haven't done what you ought to do is look in that mirror intently, study your appearance, make the changes that are necessary so you don't look like you were dressed by a first grader. So the person who hears the Word of God but doesn't do it is this type of person. They forget what they look like. They just glance at Scripture and go away not really examining their hearts, not testing thoughts and attitudes. Verse 25, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has seen but doing it, he'll be blessed in what he does. So there's a difference between the person who just glances, goes on, and forgets what they look like and the person in verse 25 who looks intently into the perfect law that gives life. This Word of God perfected, interpreted, made sense of by Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. So, James feels heavy, doesn't he? There's a whole lot of just do it language stop doing the bad start doing the good quit just glancing at this quit just hearing it start acting on it and doing it but wasn't jesus all about grace james sounds a little more stringent a bit more legalisticy perhaps jesus doesn't i mean just when we think about the way jesus spoke it seems jesus spoke different So let me read to you the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says this, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is not some DIY spirituality. Hear the word of God, you obey it. If you've got a problem with James, you've got a problem with Jesus. Because what James gives us is the words of Jesus with flesh on them. Jesus clearly calls all believers to hear the word of God and respond to God with a radical, world-renouncing obedience. It's a rare obedience. It's not common. There's something different about followers of Jesus because we look intently into this word and then we pattern our lives after it. So this is a test for us. Am I hearing the word of God? You came to church today, so in a sense, yes, you are hearing the Word of God. I wonder how else you're hearing the Word of God. Is it a regular diet for you? Are you devouring this on a daily basis? I don't know how Christians are going to make it through this world without getting the Scriptures in us every day. Not because legalism requires it, but because breathing requires it. Living requires it these are words of life for us not some burden to be shackled under but the light in the darkness of the world around us this that's what this is but it's hard work can we just be honest it's hard work to shut off our phones and turn off the tv and sit down and read and look intently and study and get into this but you must. There is nothing so transformational for the follower of Jesus Christ as the regular, disciplined study of God's Word. Nothing compares. You can be a person of prayer, but if you are not a person of the Word first, your prayers lack substance. You can be someone who loves worship, but if the Word of God doesn't inform your worship, you're just singing a song. We've got to be people who devour the Word so that our character would be different, so that everything about us would reflect Jesus Christ. Your life has to have a focus on this. Hear the word, do the word, act on it. So we've talked about two different tests so far. There's a test of character. There's a test of focus. Am I focused on the word of God to shape my character? Third and final test in this passage is what I call a test of sincerity. Verses 26 and 27 a test of sincerity. Here's the question we would ask ourselves in this test. Am I religious in the way God desires? Am I religious in the way God desires? The word religion sometimes has negative connotations. If you're too millennial for that word, that's fine. Choose a different word. I don't care. <laughs> it's fun to blame things on millennials. They're not the great cause of all calamity. It's just funny. If you're at a traffic jam, it's a millennial's fault, probably. Something like that. But uh, you can use a different word if you want. Am I religious in the way God desires? Am I spiritual? Am I following Christ in the way that God desires? Up to this point in our passage, James has told us to look at God's word so that we develop the character of Christ and so that we would practice the actions of Christ. And in these last two verses, James points us back again to the importance of our speech and the importance of our actions. So verse 26 picks up the topic of speech again. Look at it with me. Verse 26, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, 
He deceives himself, and his religion is worthless. Again, if we read this verse and we think of some sassy person that we know, (laughs) we've robbed it of its power in our lives. Because this verse is not talking about people Cody knows, it's talking about Cody. It's talking about you. And can we just sit in the heaviness of this verse for a moment? James says the Christian without a tight ring on his or her tongue practices a worthless religion. It's a big deal, the way we talk, the things we say, the way we use our words, the things we type and text. James swings the hammer at what you and I treat flippantly as not a big deal. James says if you've got words without control just falling out of your mouth, what good is that religion? What good is a Christianity that results in this kind of speech? It's not good at all. Who wants to be a Christian if that's what a Christian is, if that's how a Christian speaks? That's real damage to our witness and to the reputation of the church and the reputation of Christ if Christians are the kinds of people who have no control over their speech. And before you think James is ready to lighten up, we step into verse 27. Look at what he says here. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So here's where the question really comes into play. Am I religious in the way God desires? Am I following Jesus in the way I'm supposed to? My speech will testify in this regard. In the faith I practice, my actions are going to testify as well. Verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. So James points us here again to doing the Word of God. And care for vulnerable populations has always been a central characteristic of God's people. It's not some liberal snowflake agenda that's been infused into the church today. Care for vulnerable populations is as old as the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 through 19, and many other places, God tells his people this. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. So in the Old Testament, there's a holy trinity of vulnerable populations, the fatherless or the orphan, widows, and foreigners. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. The people of God have always had a mandate to care for vulnerable populations, and that mandate has not expired. The most recent numbers I could find related to foster care in the state of Massachusetts say that there are over 6,100 children in the foster care system. It's an increase of nearly 10% over the previous year. And that increase is due largely in part to the opioid crisis. 
Your neighbors are addicted to drugs, and their kids pay a price. Uh, For those 6,100 children, there are 4,800 foster homes available. I don't think James 1.27 is meant to remain in the theoretical or the emotional. I think the church of Jesus Christ ought to act. In 2016, it was reported that the total number of refugees settled in Massachusetts in that year alone was 2,433. The largest number of refugees were from Haiti. The second largest, almost the same exact number, were from Iraq. It's highly unlikely you could get into parts of Iraq today. Well, in fact, today it would be impossible. There's a, a, a halt on all international travel because of a Kurdish referendum and some things going on there. But instead, God is bringing Iraq to your next door. Your Christianity ought to inform your response to the refugee crisis before your politics do. No one amen to that. I don't need you to amen it to know that I'm right. Jesus Christ dictates our response to refugees. Period. UNICEF estimates that 140 million children worldwide are orphans. 168 million are child laborers. 62.8 million children worldwide suffer from acute malnutrition. These are just a few examples of vulnerable populations that the church of Jesus Christ has been given responsibility for. Before there was DCF, there was a church. And we're intended to do something about those who are hurting around us. There ought to be a righteous anger that there are churches that exist where people are suffering without care. And where our anger abides, perhaps that's right where God is calling you to act, to move, to hear the word and do the word, to alleviate the suffering in the area that speaks to your heart. It's interesting that this verse, verse 27, tells us to do two things. First, it tells us to care for vulnerable populations. Second, it says you're to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Here's this balance, this tension in the Christian life. It's not enough to merely help others, though you must. You must also pursue holiness as well. Sincere Christianity does not help people and also pursue sin. What's more, there's no way you can separate your holiness from your care for the hurting. If you evaluate yourself as a holy Christian, yet you are not practicing care for people who are broken and hurting. There's something broken in your holiness, brother and sister. Sincere Christianity does both. It pursues holiness and alleviates the suffering of others. Sounds a lot like the words of Jesus. In terms of our holiness, he said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In terms of caring for those who are broken and hurting, he said, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. James points us in the way of Jesus Christ. Because isn't this the way Jesus has loved us? The sinless Son of God, the 
God who took on flesh, born of a virgin, lived sinless and perfect his entire life because he is God and he is man. He didn't use that for his own gain or his own reward. He used that for your salvation. The Son loves the Father with everything. The, the Son lays down His life for those who are broken and hurting. The sinless Jesus died for sinful you, rose from the dead three days later, promises salvation to all those that come to Him. He shows us the way forward. How sincere is your Christianity? It's going to be proven in your pursuit of holiness and your care for broken people around you. So here's the three questions we've wrestled with today in our passage. Is my character shaped by God's Word? Are my actions informed by God's Word? And third, am I following Jesus in the way God desires? It's character, it's actions, it's sincerity. And what's the payoff? Why would you Bring your life in line with this north star, so to speak, with Jesus Christ who has given us this direction. Why would you do it? Well, there's a line in verse 25 we skipped over intentionally. Look at verse 25 with me. The one who hears and does the word of God is what? Is blessed in what he or she does. If I were to ask you prior to the service today, what does a blessed life look like? If we were to survey outside of here, blessed life might include cars and big houses and financial windfall and power and respect and all kinds of things. James tells us different. The blessed life is the one that hears the word of God and does the word of God. That's the life that God adores. That's the life that God pours out blessing upon. That's the life that God leads and guides and is glorified by. To follow in the way of Christ is a blessed life. To reflect His character, to speak His words of grace and hope, to care for the hurting, to pursue holiness. That's, that's what a blessed life looks like. That's what the life of Christ looks like. So James calls us clearly, unequivocally, to a particular way of pursuing Jesus Christ. Brother and sister Christian, may we think like Christ, may we speak like Christ, may we act like Christ, and be blessed by Christ. Would you pray with me, please? So, Father, we thank you for your word. We've looked intently at it this morning. And we've done that because we don't have the answers and we don't have all this figured out. We, we need everything you have for us. So, Lord, as we have tested our thoughts and our attitudes today and tested our actions, our motivations, I'm grateful for what your word has revealed in us. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes, for helping us to see better who we are, who you are, and what we need. For my brothers and sisters in the faith this morning, Father, I, I ask that you would help us to be people who look intently in your word, daily devouring Scripture in patterning our lives accordingly. And for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior, God, I pray that you would draw them close to you in a sincere faith that counts the costs, not some DIY morality or spirituality, but a true whole life surrender to Jesus Christ, the one who gave everything for us. Thank you for this kind of salvation 
and thank you for the sanctification that awaits. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.